Oh Lord Jesus, your words are hard for our souls to accept. This morning, would you help us not to play defense against what you are saying to us? Would you open our ears? Would you open our hearts? Would you do something by your spirit that we are incapable of doing? Would you help us to find life in your very words? Find that you are all we have ever needed. We ask you to do that in your mighty name. Amen. What would it take to offend Adolf Hitler? According to what's called the telegram crisis, the answer is seven words. Back in 1942, King Christian X of Denmark had a birthday, and Mein Fuhrer decided to write him a birthday letter. It was effusive and flattering and had all sorts of wonderful things to say about King Christian. That prompted King Christian to write him back a telegram that was exactly seven words long. It translated in English says, giving my best, comma, King Christian. Well, it turns out that Adolf Hitler doesn't like getting the equivalent of a text message saying K. Mein Fuhrer, Hitler, flew into a rage, interpreted this as a grave insult, and as a result, an international incident occurred. He removed a whole number of ambassadors and officials in Denmark. There were international repercussions for years to come, all because of seven offensive words. What does it take to offend Hitler? Seven words. What does it take to offend us today? Well, it turns out we have, if anything, a lower tolerance for offense than even previous generations. I've heard it's been said very often that we live in a culture of offense or a culture of outrage. I'm sure even if you just took the time to think through the news headlines over the last couple of weeks, you could probably think of several examples of people seeking out outrage, things to be scandalized by, and taking them on for themselves. In a culture like that, at a time like this, is it really any surprise that Jesus would be so offensive? Came across an article written by a former evangelical pastor going by the name of Bruce Gerenser. He said this about Jesus. Perhaps there is a Jesus somewhere that I could respect, a Jesus who might merit my devotion, for now, all I see is a Jesus who is worthy of derision, mockery, and hate. Yes, hate. When the Jesus who genuinely loves humanity and cares for the least of these shows up, let me know. In the meantime, I hate Jesus. Strong words. And yet, when we actually hear the words of Christ... We actually see others understand really who Jesus claims to be and what he claims for himself and for them. We'll find there's only one of two reactions we can have. Either Jesus' words will be a scandal to us or they will be life itself. That's the message of John 6, verses 60 through 71 this morning. That Jesus' words are simultaneously the greatest offense to the human heart and the only thing that can bring it lasting life. We'll see that as we study it in two sections, verses 60 through 66, the words of Jesus that scandalize, and then in verses 67 through 71, the words of Jesus that bring 
life. Let's begin in verses 60 through 66. The words of Jesus that scandalize. Verse 60 begins, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? We are at the tail end of what's called the bread of life discourse. It makes up the bulk of John 6. Jesus has been speaking with a group that sought him out, a religious first century Jews that found what they saw in Jesus attractive and would not be denied. They kept coming back for more and more. Now he's been in an extended back and forth with them, revealing who he really is and who they are in relation to him. He said some pretty daring things along the way, and we see they've moved from eagerly expectant to stumbling to now grumbling and in a moment offended by the claims of Jesus. That phrase, this is a hard saying, it could be that they're having trouble understanding what Jesus is saying, as if what he's saying is unclear. I don't think that's the case based on how Jesus responds in verse 61 and 62, though. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them. Even in that little description John gives us, he reveals this is no ordinary miscommunication. Now, these are a group of people that don't receive the words of Jesus because they refuse to accept what it is he is saying. That description of them as grumbling, that, that echoes back to that wilderness generation, that that group of people that saw the miracles of Moses, they saw the miracles at Mount Sinai, and yet it was never enough for them. Ultimately, they were unfaithful to God because they wanted something other than God himself. These people in front of Jesus are grumbling because the things Jesus says to them are too difficult to believe. Jesus goes on to explain what it is that's actually going on they are experiencing a scandalizing understanding of what Jesus is claiming. He says there in verse 61, do you take offense at this? The word there translated for offense, scandalizo, you can hear the, our English word for scandal, sharing a root there. Jesus understands that this people in front of him have understood what he has said and are offended by it? Well, that leads to a very good question. What is it that Jesus has said that's so offensive? Well, it's really the whole content of the Bread of Life discourse. And If you've been with us the last few weeks, you probably know what some of those things are. But let me summarize it in four things that Jesus has said in this chapter that these people found so offensive. The first is he dared to say he's not their type of king. Flip back with me to chapter 6, verse 15. This is right after he's multiplied the loaves and fishes and fed the 5,000. And it says, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. See, these people understood they had a great problem. The Romans had them under their thumb, and they were looking forward to God's Messiah, the, the king that God would send. And that king was to usher in an era of prosperity, to, to get the Romans off their back and allow righteousness to reign from now and forever. They thought Jesus was that man, and so they sought to make him their military leader, their king. Yet Jesus refused to give them that which they wanted. 
In verse 27, he continues this thought, showing them that what they're seeking is the wrong thing altogether. He says in verse 27, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus dares to tell them the very thing they are after is the wrong thing. They're after a lesser thing. They don't want eternal life. They want political, social revolution. It's first offense. The second offense. Jesus dares to say he is the only way to lasting spiritual life. This is really the main point of this whole passage of the bread of life discourse in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Using that image of the body needing food in order to have lasting life, Jesus says that your soul needs to feed on Jesus himself. You must believe in Jesus in order to have lasting spiritual life. Jesus claims he is the only place you can get this spiritual bread. To a group of people that thought that they were in with God already, that they were the closest to God you could get, to be told that you needed someone else to give you lasting spiritual life. Well, friends, that would be a great offense. Second offense. The third offense comes in verse 38. Jesus claimed, he dared to claim, to have a unique relationship with the Father. Verse 38 says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus claims a unique relationship with his heavenly father to a group of people who thought that they were the extent of God's family, to be told that there was someone closer to the father than him, than them. in fact, someone that is from the same place as the father, from, from actually heaven itself. Well, that was just a claim too great for them to swallow. It was a great offense for Jesus to claim this unique relationship with the father. That's the third offense. Fourth offense, in verse 58, Jesus dared to claim that he is the fulfillment of their religious traditions. In verse 58, he's returning to this bread metaphor. He said, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus dares to go back to their great hero of the faith, Moses, to go back to one of his shining moments back in the past that they would have looked fondly back on, the provision of manna from heaven. Jesus says that Moses and the manna that God provided, that was actually all pointing forward to Jesus himself. In this moment, Jesus takes all of their religious traditions and says that there is only one place that they rightly point to him, himself. Great offense number four. Now, at this point, it's pretty obvious that Jesus understands he has a hostile crowd in front of him. And if it, we've learned anything over the years from uh, the world of corporate America, it's that when something's not working, it's time to switch strategies. Or you can think of Apple. Um, there was a, a time where the, the corporation Apple was greatly struggling. They didn't have much focus to where their product offerings were. Their stock prices were low. Finally, their board became convinced that they needed a radical shift, a new change, a new direction. So they brought back their former CEO, Steve Jobs, and had an entirely new way to run their business, focusing on personal computers and one day on the iPhone and all the devices that have 
catapulted them into the stratosphere of the corporate world. We understand the principle. Something's not working. Basic general logic would be, well, you try something else. So you might think that if Jesus is sensing that this crowd in front of him is becoming hostile, and if Jesus' goal is to gather for himself a group of people to, to gain popularity, then now this is the time to dial it back, Jesus. Say some easy stuff. Give them a chance to catch their breath. But friends, that's not the sort of guy Jesus is, now is he? Now as he often does, he actually dials up the offense. And he has left the greatest offense for last. The offense of the cross. Look with me in verse 63, uh, 62. Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Jesus asks them a hypothetical question. If, if these things are hard enough for you to believe, what about what's coming? Next comes a, a reference which is on, on its face seems to refer to what we call the ascension. After Jesus died and was in the tomb for three days, he was raised to new life. He, he showed himself to the, the apostles and then they saw him ascend back into heaven. As the Apostles' Creed says it, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The offense there for those who had trouble believing Jesus was from heaven would be just as equal if he went back to heaven. That might be the offense Jesus is talking about. And yet, as so often is the case in John's Gospel, John is a nuanced writer who writes in layers. And on the first wave through reading John's Gospel, you might come to the conclusion Jesus is talking about the ascension. After you've read through the whole Gospel, you'll realize that John uses this concept of Jesus ascending or being lifted up as a way to talk about the cross. What we're seeing here is the dark shadow of the cross being cast back even to this group that's standing before Jesus. And friends, let's recognize that there is no greater offense than the cross of Jesus. Certainly that would be true for a first century Jew, but it's true for us today also. For a first century Jew, the idea of a crucified Messiah was a contradiction of terms. The Messiah doesn't lose. The Messiah doesn't die. The Messiah brings victory for God's people. You're going to tell me that some pagan Romans are going to kill God's anointed one? They're going to kill the king sent from heaven? This was not something that they were prepared for, and it was certainly not something they were ready to accept. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 23 has this same idea to it, the offense of the cross, particularly to the Jewish mind. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The thought that the very king of heaven that was come down would be killed was not something these people were ready to accept. Yet, let's realize that as difficult as it was for a first century Jew to believe in the lifted up Messiah, it's not all that much easier for us today. There are lots and lots of offenses that the cross of Jesus bring to us in our modern sensibilities. Think about it. The, the cross 
shows us that there will be a final judgment and that the very wrath of God must be satisfied. In a day and age we live, the, the thought of a God that actually holds humanity to account, that is not a popular thought. Or what about the offense of our powerlessness before a holy God? The cross shows us that we were unable to fix this relationship with God, to, to deal with our own sin. No, we needed someone else to come do what we could not do for ourselves. I remember being on a college campus and hearing a philosophy student who had just heard uh, the gospel presented at an evangelism, uh, evangelistic uh, uh, event. And when we got to this portion about one sin being paid for by Jesus, this philosophy student stood up and was indignant. Her exact words were, I don't need anyone to deal with my sin. I can handle it myself. Thank you very much. It is a scandal to the modern heart and mind to be told that you are powerless before this God and someone else must do what you can't do for yourself. In our day and age, maybe the greatest scandal of all is the scandal that Jesus claims to be Lord over all creation, including creatures made in God's image. We want the freedom to define our own desires and wants and ways of life, even our own genders. And yet Jesus would say it was not so from the beginning. God made them male and female. There's a great scandal to the words of Jesus. And the greatest scandal of all is the cross of Jesus. For the reason of that last scandal, we uh, will actually spend the next three weeks looking at the image of God and its implications for what it means to be a Christian. We'll take a, a little break from the Gospel of John because, quite frankly, there is a lot that needs to be said, and a lot of Christian needs to understand about how to be faithful in the area of the fact that we are created in God's image and what that means about living in the world we live in. Now, let me just say, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, I understand that there are many things about the message of Christianity that you will find offensive. I'm not surprised about that. I've seen that happen again and again. But can I just give a little bit of advice? If you're interested in Christianity, don't get outraged over imagined offenses. Take the time to actually read the words of Jesus and study the Bible. So often, the offenses that people have about Christianity aren't actually things that the Bible teaches or aren't presented the way the Bible presents them. If you don't know how to do that, the best advice I can give you is find a Christian that's willing to study the Bible with you and ask them to help you understand what Christianity is all about. If you don't have a Christian in your life that you can ask to do that, come talk to me afterward. I would love to find someone that can explain what the Bible says and who this Jesus is. Jesus tells us, he tells a group of people that are offended by him that the greatest offense is still to come. Which is why in verses 63 through 65, he goes on to explain what's needed to accept these words. It's the very intervention of God himself. Verse 63, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who would, did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. 
In verse 63, that reference to is the spirit that gives life. I, I think that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. I think the flesh that's referred to there is not the flesh of Jesus, but the flesh as in our sinful humanity, our, our sinful selves. What Jesus then is talking about here is the need for God to intervene by his Holy Spirit for us to accept the words of Jesus. Last week we talked about the, a doctrine called illumination, that there's a work of God that has to happen on the inside, that by God's Spirit he must open our hearts or our minds, not just so that we can understand the words of Jesus, but that we might actually find them attractive instead of repulsive. You can see that thought concluded in verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted by the Father. It's really important for us to understand why it is we find Jesus' words so offensive. It's because the human heart is naturally tilted away from God. It's naturally constructed in such a way that it will find the very claims of the, the scriptures and Jesus himself to be offensive. It's a thought that comes out in 1 Corinthians 2.14, rather clearly. The natural person does not accept the things of God, the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We shouldn't be surprised when the words of Jesus, even when said with the most grace you can muster, even, even as careful as you give them, we should not be surprised that they will cause offense. Because on our own, that's not what we're looking for. The end result of all this is what we see happens to the crowd in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. As F.F. Bruce put it, what they wanted he would not give, and what he offered they would not receive. It's a chilling thought to think about how easy it is for someone to hear the words of Jesus and walk away and totally reject him. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, if you're a Christian, I hope you realize that I'm not just talking about unbelievers in this moment. That it is easy to allow your heart to be offended by the things that Jesus says, by extension, the Bible, the word of Christ says, that it is very easy to be scandalized by them and even to, in small, a small way, turn your back on them. Uh, have you ever had the case where you're studying the Bible and you come across a section in it that is difficult to understand or even a little offensive to you? It makes you a little uncomfortable. You ever feel that tendency to, to just kind of skip it, pretend it's not there, and move on to an easier section? If the words of Christ have this abrasive effect on our souls, when that happens, we shouldn't run away from those verses. We should spend the time to really understand what it is Jesus is saying until we can accept them as for what they are, the, the very words of life. Or, or what about when you're talking with a non-Christian and you start to feel a little resistance as you talk about Jesus? Do you ever find yourself trying to remove the scandal of Jesus' words? sugarcoat what you're saying just a little bit maybe you're embarrassed about the idea of judgment maybe it's the idea that someone actually had to die a bloody death on the cross that you just have trouble getting there and talking about it 
realize that that is present in each one of us because there's remaining sin. And naturally, without the Spirit's help, we will find the words of Christ offensive. That means there's every reason that we should be praying, God, would you help me not to be scandalized by Jesus, not to walk away from him. Instead, to find his words to be the very source of life. That brings us to the second section, verses 67 through 70. The alternative to being offended or scandalized by the words of Jesus is to find that Jesus' words actually bring us life. Now, Jesus has just gone from being hero to zero. He has gone from having this crowd pressing on him in popularity to now it's just him and the 12 left. It's understandable why he responds the way he does in verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? It could sound like Jesus is kind of mournfully being emotive at that moment. He's sorrowful as he asks that question, but I don't think that's the case. I think Jesus, as he so often does, is asking a question that will require a clarification of where the disciples stand in relation to Jesus. He is asking them to decide, will they be scandalized and walk away? Or will they receive his words as the very words of life? What follows in verses 68 and 69 is a beautiful confession from Peter. It's got two components to it. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Two components of Peter's confession. The first is Peter confesses the exclusivity of these words of Jesus. He says, where else can we go? You've got the words of eternal life. It's uh, been over 10 years since the iPhone came out. Back 10 years ago, if you saw someone holding an iPhone, you could know exactly who they were paying their phone bill to. Turns out when the iPhone came out, you could not have it on Verizon or Sprint or T-Mobile or a whole slew of other carriers. The only place you could get an iPhone was on AT&T. And you had to pay a lot of money on the first generation of iPhones. It was an exclusive which meant it would have been useless for you to go to any of these other characters looking, carriers looking for an iPhone. The disciples here, through Peter, have come to the realization that Jesus has something that no one else can provide. Jesus has the exclusive corner on these words of life. Now, if you're a Christian, you have come to know this, don't you? There's no one else that can give you a clear conscience before God. There's no one else that can give you a union so deep that it even transcends the bonds of families and races and ethnicities. There's no one else that can put God's spirit in you and promise you that you will live forever with God. In the very words of Jesus, in the very things he teaches, you have found something that you won't find anywhere else. Peter's confession shows us the exclusivity of Christ's words. It also shows us the lordship required by Christ's words. That second half of his confession there in verse 69. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. 
Peter says that they have experienced this. They have come to a personal belief and knowledge. It's not something anyone told them about. They have believed and come to know. What is it they have come to know? That he is the Holy One of God. Now, that's a title that's used only one other place in the Gospels. It's actually on the lips of a demon at that point. It points to the lordship, kingship of Jesus. Jesus is the one with all power and authority. Peter's confession here is to recognize this authoritative, sovereign Jesus and to say, we have come to bow before you and know what that, ex- that experience means for our lives. This is not just religion and some abstract system worked out. No, this is relationship with the very creator of the world, the sovereign of the world that they know from firsthand experience. That's a, a pretty amazing confession from Peter at this point. And yet, in the last two verses, we see that as amazing as this confession was, as much as we can learn from it, ultimately, it was an incomplete confession. Look at verse 17 through 71. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You might think that after all those that have walked away, after getting a positive confession from Peter, that Jesus would have commended him. He would have said, finally, someone gets it. Finally, someone understands who I am. And yet instead, Jesus, he points out that this group of people, as much as they have come to trust him, they still don't understand the full picture. Once again, when you read through the whole gospel, you know what ends up happening with these 12 disciples. Right now, they are confessing he is the Holy One of God. There's a day coming when this very one who said those words, Simon Peter, will deny him three times. and won't even acknowledge knowing him. When all of these 12 will abandon him, and slink off into the shadows of their own sin, and where one of them, Judas, will even betray Jesus for some pocket change. Jesus understands as much as they want to have their allegiance in him and understand that they have received his words, that they still have one more test to come, that there's still one more word they must hear. Because hanging on that cross, he must say, Tetelestai, it is finished. Until they understand what the cross of Christ was, they'll never fully understand how his words bring life. Now, brothers and sisters, you have knowledge of the cross. You know where this Jesus was headed. You know what he came to do. If you're a Christian this morning, that means that you have experienced this new life that Jesus offers. You have found the forgiveness of sins. You have found this new relationship with God that starts now and goes on forever. So brothers and sisters, you need to ask yourself the question, where else could you possibly go to find what you have in Jesus? Will a self-help guru really be able to give you five instructions that you need to have spiritual life? As much as it feels like a punch list will do it, it will be no help at all. Will the idea that the world is just made up of the material matter in this world, 
that we are just molecules bouncing until one day we stop? Will believing that there's nothing except the stuff in this universe, will, will that bring you lasting peace, friends? Consider the fact that one day those molecules will stop bouncing, and that means all of your actions would be totally meaningless. Or maybe it's the beauty of nature that allures you. A wonderful sunset, the beauty of the created world. Maybe it feel, makes you feel as if you are close to something spiritual and divine and you, you almost feel like that is better than the words of Jesus. Yet friends, nature is really just a display of art. It's really just beauty designed to draw you back to the very beautiful one himself. To worship nature is to settle for far, far too little. Or what about the pursuit of pleasure? Just living for what feels right or whatever your heart tells you is right to do. It may seem like that will fulfill you, but friends, so many have gone down that road and none of them have found lasting satisfaction. You will always be more empty at the end of that road than when you started. My brothers and sisters, if you have come to know this Jesus, there's nowhere else you can go to find what you have in him. I opened with a man who used to be a pastor who walked away from the words of Jesus because he found them scandalous. I want to end with another man who found these words to be the very words of life. He was a young Algerian who came to faith in Christ through some miraculous means. Over time, the government got on to his Christian faith and his evangelistic endeavors, and so he got thrown in jail. He endured incredible hardship in that prison. He and some other believers managed to get a contraband Bible. They separated the Bible into different chunks so each of them could have a little bit of the words of Christ. Eventually, he got found out. They discovered the Bible. And what followed was a series of encounters with pain and torture. One of the men that was torturing him started asking him why he's doing what he did. He said, one of the persecutors asked me a question. Why are you paying such a big price? Why don't you renounce your faith and live a peaceful life? I replied, to me, the word of God is life. Brothers and sisters, if you have come to know this Jesus, there's nowhere else you can find what you need. The very words of life to you, living and active, speaking to you day in and day out, filling your soul now and one day granting you unending joy with this Jesus. Words of Jesus, simultaneously the greatest offense and the only source of life for the human heart. Let's pray.